Good evening and welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new LA. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is an independent, nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. In his new book, Generation Rx, How Prescription Drugs Are Altering American Lives, Minds, and Bodies, author Greg Kreitzer charts the explosion of pharmaceutical consumption in the United States and the effect it's had on our culture, our health, and our finances. In tonight's show, which was presented at the Los Angeles Central Library, Kreitzer digs into the history of today's most popular drugs, from Viagra to Zoloft. And in the second half of Zocalo this evening, we'll revisit author Leonard Chang's discussion of the writer's life. Now here's Greg Kreitzer. Tonight I'm here to talk about the pharmaceutical business, and more specifically, how we developed our appetite for pharmaceuticals in this modern age of healthcare. Before I get into some of the numbers, et cetera, I wanted to throw out a few questions for you to think about, and then we'll come back to them at the end of the lecture. Here's the first. Which 1976 commentator on direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs concluded that, quote, the societal interest against the promotion of drug use for every ill, real or imaginary, seems to me extremely strong? Here's the options. A, the AMA. B, the American Pharmacy Association. C, Justice William Rehnquist, or D, Justice Harry Blackman. Here's your second one. Today, most new prescription drugs are expected to show profitability within A, 90 days, B, 120 days, C, one year, or D, three years. Here's your third question. The day after the FDA announced that Pfizer's blockbuster pain pills Celebrex was associated with increased risks for heart attacks, Pfizer, company that made it, posted the following on the homepage of its website. A, a special announcement that the company was sorry and that it would refund the amount of all current Celebrex prescriptions. <laughs> You're so cynical. B, a special sweepstakes offering a, quote, free Royal Caribbean getaway to anyone who registered his name and personal information with the site. C, a special twofer, do it until you drop coupon for Viagra and Celebrex. <laughs> D, none of the above, and E, all of the above. And I'll throw one kind of sobering one in here. This is the fourth one. In ancient Greece, the word pharmakon meant A, an untrustworthy agricultural worker, B, a reformed criminal, C, a delicious beverage, or D, both remedy and poison. Uh, we'll come back to that later. How did I get into this subject coming off of writing about um, fat Americans? Um, I was fundamentally attracted to the subject of appetite and the expansion of appetite. Obviously, with my first book, that was about food and, and literal appetite. Um, in this case, um, I had been working on the subject for some time, and um, I got a set of statistics that came out by the Kaiser Family Foundation in, I believe it was 2002, and talked about the trends in prescription drug use. And it was really startling, because between about 1990 and 2002, our use of prescription drugs per capita more than doubled. Probably more important, that meant that about every other American, 46% exactly, used at least one prescription drug a day. And that one in every six Americans now uses three or more prescription drugs on a daily basis. Now, that was kind of shocking to me, and I wanted to say, well, how did that happen? And my first thought was, well, that's because we're getting older, and it's natural to use a lot more drugs as you get older. But as I looked at it, I saw that these increases, both percentage and per capita, had increased across the board from youth to old age. So I started asking the question, what had changed about our medical system that allowed this to happen? Was it good? 
And the um, short sort of take-home answer to it, this 15 years of work I'll give you in one sentence, is that it is because our medical system has been turned into a consumer goods system. And how did that happen? Well, the best way to tell the story is really to tell the story about pharmaceutical companies who were kind of, 25 years ago, sort of fuddy-duddy companies. You know, they were the kind of place you worked at if, and, and you were a CEO at in particular if you liked country clubs, if you weren't interested in advertising, if you had something of a scientific background and knew something about managing a large corporation. I think um, that world saw itself as a medical enterprise, as something somewhat different than a large consumer goods organization that was selling, let's say, Twinkies or bubble gum or soap. Okay? And the corporate culture was very different than those companies. This was a company, these were corporate cultures that valued kind of long-term investments. Yes, of course, they wanted to get good new products out when they could, but they were basically driven with more of a scientific mentality. There was an FDA commissioner uh, who was appointed by President Reagan, and in 1983, he actually was the first person to propose direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs. And he was lambasted by just about everybody. And in Congress, um, they called a special meeting and they asked all of these executives and experts to talk about what they thought about direct-to-consumer advertising. Would this be a good thing? And some of these experts said things like this. Advertising would have the objective of driving patients into doctor's offices seeking prescriptions. We believe that the chances for damaging doctor-patient relations and for encouraging costly competitive battles are real while the likelihood that meaningful patient education will occur is small. Okay, that was one expert. Another one said, the potential pressure of advertising prescription drugs on the scientific decisions of physicians are both unwise and inappropriate. Was another wild-eyed expert said, we fail to understand a benefit to any audience of direct-to-consumer advertising. And one last guy said, well, what this will end up doing is diverting all of the research and development in drug companies into advertising. So they really thought it was an awful idea. Now, does anybody have, who hasn't read the book have any idea who those experts were? That those were the CEOs of all of the major drug companies in the United States. That's what they thought about the idea of direct-to-consumer advertising. And I think, in a sense, it, it characterizes kind of a lost world, <laughs> a lost corporate world. And so the question really becomes, what changed their minds? Okay. They said it was bad for the patient, it was bad for the doctor, and it could be bad for the company. And they're on the record in front of a government committee. Um, three things changed. First of all, they had to start competing. In 1984, the Congress passed a law that made it finally a little bit easier to get generic drugs approved by the FDA. So the kind of um, floating along on past achievements that these large companies like Merck, Lilly, et cetera, Pfizer were doing, that era had come to an end. You know, it, it was okay if you had a whole bunch of mini monopoly little pills that no one else could make, protected by patents or by FDA inactivity. You didn't have to launch a whole bunch of new drugs every year. You could launch one or two and still make it to the country club by 5.30. So that changed. All of a sudden, you know, these guys started saying, we, we've got to move things along here. We've got to launch some new drugs, and a lot. Uh, number two changed, and that was Wall Street. Uh, the 80s saw the rise of the personal finance movement. It really was a movement, if you think about it, because how many of us ever thought we would hold stock portfolios 25 years ago? Now it's common, part of, of, uh, of retirement planning. 
And um, what the new portfolio manager said was, well, what's going on with Merck and Lilly and Pfizer? Why don't they have the same kind of returns that Procter and Gamble and McDonald's, et cetera, have? And someone would say, well, you know, it, they are pharmaceutical companies, and, and they make a decent profit every year, but, you know, we've never put them in the same portfolios as the consumer goods companies. And the new generation says, well, that's going to change, because now it wasn't just a few people banging on the doors of, of Wall Street, but it was millions of people who had a, a stake, a direct stake in, in American corporations. I think you can make the argument, and it's made constantly by the think tanks in Washington, D.C., that this is a great thing. I think that also the average American might make the argument that it's a good thing in the sense of giving you more options in terms of retirement and in giving you a stake in the economy. But one thing it definitely did was it changed the expectations on the modern CEO of pharmaceutical companies. No longer could he go to the board with you know, 10 or 11% smiling. He had to come up with 15 or 16%. And so that put additional pressure to launch a lot of new drugs quickly. Lastly, and, and this was really kind of drove the CEOs and the heads of the companies crazy, was the rise of managed care. Here was this other huge entity and buyer saying, well, we'll take that drug and we'll pay for that one, but we're not going to pay for that. We're not going to put that on our formulary. So here were three things, uh, interference, pressure by Wall Street, and real competition that were pressuring these guys to change. And very quickly they did. I think the best way to, to tell you the story is give you a couple of, examples of the kind of uh, CEOs who, who ran these companies in the late 80s and early 90s when this sea change happened. One was a guy named William Steer. William Steer was made the head of Pfizer in 1988. Now, Bill Steer had gone to Stanford as an undergraduate. He was kind of a shy guy, and um, he had joined Pfizer right after graduating in 1960 and stayed in the company his whole life, you know. This is just a remarkable thing in just so many ways when I think about it. <laughs> and, uh, but Bill Steer was, he entered the company right when Pfizer was positioning itself as a leader in terms of doing politics, knowing how to work the political system. And um, Steer was very attracted to this and to the charismatic leadership of Pfizer. He was a marketing person. That was really all that he was ever interested in. So... Bill Steer was at Pfizer for about 27 years and had made his bones as a marketing guy and moved into the CEO position. And when he, uh, when he did, he called his, um, one of his chief of staff from the regulatory affairs and from marketing and from R&D, and he sat them down and they said, well, what's your vision for the company? Because that's what you're supposed to do now when, you, when there's a new boss, you ask them what their vision is. And he said, well, there's really three things I want you to do for me. The first thing is I want you to bring research and development and marketing closer together. The second thing I want you to do is to bring research and development and marketing closer together. And the third thing I want you to do is put R&D and marketing closer together. So these guys got the picture very quickly. Bill Steer moved the office of the head of R&D to Manhattan next to his office. He wanted to literally keep an eye on him. And the head of marketing was on the other side. It was very clear that something had happened at Pfizer that had never happened before. And that was that people who used to, uh, scientists in particular, who never went down the alley or, the, or the, um, the aisle where all of the marketing guys were, or never went to their meetings, all of a sudden were kind of encouraged to go down there. And the marketing guys who never went down the scientific side, because, you know, these guys were just throw stuff at them, all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're going down there and having little meetings. And, and the way this played out within, within 
Pfizer was played out at most other pharmaceutical companies. This merging, or what will be called re-engineering in other large industries, took the form of really R&D and marketing people getting closer together. And what happens when you do that? I think that anyone um, who studies business in America has to be somewhat awestruck at innovation and the way innovation emerges. It's, it's a great strength of our nation. Nevertheless, there's, as part of creation and capitalistic creation, there's also destruction and possible downsides. And these two things really came together in these meetings of these men, largely men, some women, uh, who were the heads of these companies. Two things came out of, out of Pfizer that I think that are notable. One was a, a compound that they had been throwing around forever uh, to treat angina or heart pain, heart pain associated with heart attack, et cetera, et cetera. It just never worked out. But the scientists kept coming back to their R&D meetings and say, well, maybe if we tweak it this way or put this molecule on top of this molecule, we might get something. Never worked. Well, at one of the first meetings after Steer's new edict, where the marketing guys were there, they said, well, what does this pill, what does this chemical do? They said, well, you know, it, it doesn't, it's supposed to act on the nitric acid content of smooth muscle tissue. And they said, well, wait a minute, what is that? What are you, what are you talking about? And they said, well, whenever there's tissue that needs to be engorged with blood, this nitric oxide acts as, and they said, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Are there any side effects to this drug? And they said, well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> we do have um, a, a consistent side effect with this nitric oxide inhibiting compound. And they said, well, what's that? And they said, well, it seems to cause erections. And, uh, and the marketing guys said, well, that's not a side effect. <laughs> that's an effect, you idiots. That's really the origins of Viagra. That's how Viagra comes about. Now, they had to create a disease to go with that, right? Because as you, well, for most men, uh, <laughs> as you get older, it, it's just harder to get up, right? It's just going to happen. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, so they had to create a disease, and that's where you get erectile dysfunction. The company started underwriting a lot of urologists, uh, et cetera, to do so-called clinical trials and case study trials um, on what were the consequences of not being able to get it up. <laughs> and they marshaled a very strong case, as I think, I don't want to be insensitive, but they marshaled a very strong case, and so created through the literature, the scientific literature, the designation of erectile dysfunction as a medical condition or a disease, right? Which is what you have to have before you can get a drug approved by the FDA that you can sell. And so that's exactly what they did. And that's why you see, you know, the compound had been around forever. It doesn't come out till 1999. Um, and then it becomes the, the single biggest blockbuster launch of a, of a pharmaceutical drug ever. That was one of the Bill Steer's first... Um, endeavors. The other one I think that's important to note is um, Zoloft, um, is an antidepressant, so-called SSRI, or a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Uh, that compound had been around for a long time too. You know, most of the stuff that you've seen that's supposedly new, those compounds have been around for 20, 30 years. They just never found a way to position the pill with its effect. And Zoloft was an interesting thing because, see, Prozac had already come out and had dominated that field. Does anyone know why Prozac was so popular? Do you think it was because it worked better? It's because you can't overdose on it. That's its major benefit. And that's why general practitioners felt free to prescribe it, right? Where before they would never, they would never do that. It would be psychiatrists who did that. So they had Zoloft, and they're trying to figure out how to position it. And Steer said, well, wait a minute. Who are most likely 
to report a depression. Let's forget about what the drug does. Who's most likely to report a depression? And the marketing guys ran out and spent a jillion dollars and came back and said, um, women. <laughs> They're going to say it. The guys are going to, the guys will say it, but it's going to take a long time. Women will report a depression. He said, well, why don't we have a Zoloft woman? And there's where the, the origin to the first campaign, both to consumers and to doctors, was called uh, Into the Mainstream with Zoloft. It was a large tableau of a woman, superwoman, doing everything from jogging on the beach with a friend, to dining, tangoing, schlepping the kids, cooking dinner, pointing at a chart of everything going up on, at a sales meeting, et cetera, et cetera. And Steer discovered that what applied to consumer goods, fashion, uh, electronics, applied to pills. You could sell a pill based on people aspiring to be what the image was that was associated with that pill. Okay. And, th and that, believe it or not, physicians would be swayed by this as well. Zoloft went on to become, a, I believe at its peak, was around a $3.5 billion a year drug. So that was how Bill Steer uh, dealt with this huge sea change at Pfizer. Um, the other great case study was, and I think still is, SmithKline, which became SmithKline Glaxo, which became Glaxo. The guy who was chosen to run SmithKline in the early 1990s was a, a gentleman named Jan Leshley. Jan Leshley had been a professional tennis player in the 1970s. He had been a Davis Cup champion. He was a charming man. And he um, very quickly attracted the attention of one of the tennis team's sponsors, which was Novo Novartis. And uh, they recruited him when it was clear it was time for him to retire from tennis into their sales ranks. And Leshley rose very quickly through the ranks in this Danish company in marketing, eventually ended up leaving the company because he clashed with his sponsor, the guy who founded the company, because Leslie was just too hard driving. He kind of played everything like a match that he couldn't be lost. He was recruited by Squibb, Bristol-Myers Squibb, in the early 1980s by Richard Furlow, who was the head of Bristol-Myers Squibb at the time. And Furlow was kind of a genteel guy who had been trying to turn Bristol-Myers Squibb into a powerhouse for a long time and was having a hard time, mainly because all of these people around saying you can't use modern marketing on pills, right? Leslie came into the company and had a huge amount of charisma. I, let's just tell you an example. I did interview Leslie and I managed to get some of his friends to talk to me and, and they said he, he was really kind of a transforming personality within Bristol-Myers Squibb because the company was so uptight that even at the company Christmas dinner, no one asked each other's wives to dance. It's like, don't do that. What would happen? And here comes Leslie, this kind of tan tennis playing guy, you know, forehand, backhand. You know, he's dancing with everybody's wives. And he electrifies the ranks, the rank and file. And this, by the way, this matters within a giant corporation of people who are on the front lines of sales, marketing, research and development. This kind of stuff matters. Um, when you're at a large organization and you have a long-term goal, you need, you need people to enliven the ranks and like rank and file. And Leslie did it. He came up with the first, uh, the idea of marketing a side effect profile. He said, what do you got? What do we got? What are we going to launch? And they said, well, we got this thing called Captan. It's a blood, blood pressure medication. It's not a diuretic. And we're thinking maybe it's a $50 million a year market. He said, well, why didn't do we bother with that? He says, well, the diuretics are, you know, have established themselves. And he says, well, what do the diuretics do side effect wise? And they said, well, blah, 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 and 
diminished libido. And he said, well, does our drug do that? And uh, they went back and did a bunch of tests. They said, well, as a matter of fact, no, it doesn't. Let's sell that. Okay. So what Leslie and his people did was position Captain not so much for its therapeutic benefits but for its side effect profile. And it's another great advertisement of uh, a blood pressure medication. And you see all of these older people... Um, and they're, they're portrayed as supposed to be, you know, vigorous, et cetera, and clearly they've got something else on their mind while they're dancing, right? <laughs> because they're taking captain. Sex really does sell. So that was Leslie's experience, and, and captain just went through the roof. It just blew everything away. Leslie got too competitive for himself again and um, ended up leaving Bristol-Myers Squibb. He lands at SmithKline, and on his desk is this new drug that they're going to put out against Prozac and now Zoloft called Paxil. Paxil is again an antidepressant. He looks around the room and he says, what's, you know, what's our market for this? And I got this story from him firsthand. He was a wonderful interview. He said, I sat down with all these people and I, they said, well, we think we can do $500 million a year. And he said, well, why bother? He says, why are you guys thinking so small? He said, I want a $3 billion a year drug. What does, this, what does this chemical do? You're locked into the notion of treating depression. What else does the chemical do? And somebody raised their hand and said, well, um, there were a few trials in Japan in which people who were chronically shy or had social affect disorder uh, responded very well. Um, not only were they not depressed, but they got out of themselves like never before. And Leslie said, well, that's, you know, that's amazing. And um, uh, then their marketing guy said, but, you know, there's about two people with social affect disorder in the United States. <laughs> he said, well, that's not good. He says, but maybe many people have it who aren't aware of it. <laughs> and I don't think I have to tell you the rest of the story. It's exactly what happened. The company popularized the notion, got, the, got an indication by the FDA, and by 1988, Paxil was a $3 billion a year drug. Um, this repeats itself in all of the companies, really. Re-engineering is a fad in American industry in general, and specifically and remarkably in American pharmaceuticals. By 2002, the industry, which had churned out 1,200 new compounds, about half of them were no better or safer than pills that were already existing. And, and by the way, by this time also, advertising is $4 billion a year. The relationship with Madison Avenue and pharmaceuticals is now a $4 billion industry. Okay. Sampling, most of us have experienced sampling when we go to our doctors. You know, he's, well, we're thinking about this, try this, right? Sampling is a perfect um, example of how appetite has expanded. It's like snacking. I mean, when you go to your doctor and they say, well, we're thinking about maybe this, that's snacking. And anybody who knows who's tried to kind of control their weight and snacking knows that what happens with snacking is you want more. And I'm not saying there's an addictive thing going on, but I'm saying there's a psychological thing going on in terms of the enlargement of appetite. And that's exactly what sampling is about. I think it has a positive thing to it in the sense that occasionally a poor person gets some free drugs, but not very often. Sampling is around, I think, $500 million a year uh, in the United States now, $500 million a year spent on sampling to the consumer, which I guess is about a buck ninety-eight in Canada, but um, <laughs> it's about a half a billion dollars worth. So what we really have created, and one of the things I talk about in the book, is we have created a pharmaceutical default 
in American medicine, where the first default is the sampling and the use of a pill, often a new pill that, that even in the pharmaceutical industry's own trade magazines, they will tell you, only has about a 50% chance of working. Okay? This is one reason you're starting to see some, some churning now by pharmaceutical companies because their sales are down. And also, the perfect storm has happened to them. And I think I don't really have to go into the details of Viox, but we know what happened. Viox is really the, the perfect candidate for when things go wrong in this new system, when you stimulate the end user of a strong compound to demand a drug. Viox, as most of you probably know, was mainly looked at as a gastrointestinal drug, not as an arthritis drug because its only real benefit over ibuprofen was the fact that it didn't antagonize your gut. Okay? It was no better therapeutically for arthritis pain. But by, because it was new and because there was about a $40 million advertising campaign, aided and abetted, I think, by the American media, who loves to put pills on the covers of their magazines, it was established as a huge blockbuster within a very short period of time. We know now that probably about 25,000 people conservatively died because of IOX. And the real question there, I think, has to be, is there anything that we can do to change this larger reliance on pharmaceuticals? I think that pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical research are important, that they do great things, but I also think that they have become so ratcheted up in importance and have so much cultural power that when there are indeed mistakes or problems, the mistakes and problems become huge and consequential for everyone. So let me, let me stop right there and open it up to questions. The question is the relationship between the length of the patent that a drug company has, mm -hmm. its expiration and the uh, creation uh, by generic companies of something similar. Is the drug company then compelled to make a Me Too drug uh, that's slightly better or another drug company to make it and then start the whole marketing mechanism again? And if so, why don't they just expand the period for which a drug company can hold a patent so that they don't have to keep creating Me Too drugs? Um, okay, first of all, the term Me Too drugs is not normally used the way you use it. A Me Too drug is ge generally when a drug company can creates another antidepressant with the same mechanism of action as company A. So Zoloft, Prozac, okay? That's a Me Too drug. Zoloft would have been seen as a Me Too drug. There is the phenomenon, however, as, as a drug company approaches the end of its patent, which by the way, the reason they can't make, just make the patent bigger, they have to pass new laws. They can't just do that every time they want to do that. So as they approach their deadline to their patent, they will start filing new patents for new versions of the drug. So, for example, you'll see Paxil CR, continuous release, or Paxil SR, you know, super release, or whatever. And they will make a case that this deserves a patent extension. So that's one tactic. And, and that actually is going to start to backfire, because what is going to happen is that someone is going to challenge the time release patents. They're going to say, this time release technology is not an innovation. There has to be an innovation established to get a new patent. And someone is going to say, and, they, and you're seeing it now, there's a company called, uh, a giant software company called Science International, which has a program now that deals with pharmaceutical patents that allows you to do a worldwide search for mechanisms of action. And what you're going to see is the FDA is going to start turning down requests for new drugs 
that come five years late with a, uh, a time release technology. They're going to say, well, if it's so great, why didn't you put it in five years ago? Right? Why do you want it now? And I think that's going to end. You're going to see basically everything is going to come out with the state-of-the-art time release. It will take some kind of tough-minded lawyering on the part of, I think, both generic companies and the FDA, but I think that's going to change. Has anybody looked into the issue of drug companies doing a lot of studies for one drug and then some of the studies show a benefit and then a lot of them don't, but they're held in confidence by the FDA? So, so this is the, the notion and the issue of buried clinical, unfavorable clinical studies. And that has happened over the last 20, 25 years many, many times. There is a very concise, concerted effort to end that now by requiring federal registration on the FDA website of all in-process clinical trials. That has to be um, registered on the website before the actual trial starts to give the date of the actual trial, et cetera, so people can go back and say, well, whatever happened to that? Um, there's this effort to fill in the blanks, so to speak. And whether or not that will work or not, who, who really knows? Um, you have to remember, clinical trials have been privatized. Fifteen years ago, most clinical trials were run by large universities. Okay? And those universities had institutional review boards and guys who sat around on them and said, well, you know what? I don't feel really motivated by this new compound. I think it's not such a great clinical trial. Come back to me next year with a better protocol. That's not the case anymore. Now, 75% of clinical trials are run by for-profit enterprises who are looking for a reason to say yes to a clinical trial protocol. And so you have an enormous kind of inflation of clinical data without the same kind of, I believe, academic oversight that, that we need. Um, I was wondering if some of these medications are actually helpful for people. And like I think of Viagra, I know that some diabetics aren't able to function mm -hmm. and they could be young. It seems like a lot of things actually help even though they're using it in their same kind of selfish sense, it still helps people. Yeah, um, m my complaint isn't with the use of prescription drugs. My complaint is with the power and the reformation of our medical system by pharmaceutical companies and by basically a consumerism that twists everything to favor the pharmaceutical at the outset of everything. You know, it, it, it's pretty hard to argue with somebody who says, you know, I'm a 25-year-old diabetic and Viagra has really changed my life. I'm not going to say that, you know, you shouldn't have your Viagra. But I think the other part of your question is, what's the upside of all these drugs? And the answer is $4 billion a year will tell you what that upside is. It's where they're not taking responsibility for that power. No, they I don't have, think they or? take responsibility yeah. for it at all. And, I, and I think you can look at it pretty much on how they behave in Washington, D.C. Yeah, exactly. So, for example, let me just tell you one little thing that you'll see coming down the legislative pike, which is to get uh, protection, special protection for pharmaceutical companies, and, and to take away our right to sue a pharmaceutical company in a state court. There's going to be legislation that will be introduced probably over the next six months to do exactly that. And I think that is a good example of the misuse of, of power. You asked yourself a question towards the end of your speaking portion, which was, what can we do about this? And then you turned it over to questions and answers. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you the question you asked but didn't answer, what can be done about this? Well, there's a book that gets into detail. Um, <laughs> You know, there, I think there's a few things. 
I think we have to not think of healthcare as a consumer. I think we have to think of healthcare as doctors and patients and healthcare givers providing medical care and healthcare. Going to the doctor is not the same as going to the mall. Okay? You don't get everything you ask for. So I think that's one, that's a change of attitude. Now, how do you go about doing that without going back to the old system, which was the doctor is God? You know, right? the, the doctor used to be God. Many of them still are. But, um, <laughs> and, and that changed. And I think that was a healthy change in the sense of people feeling that they could ask for more information, uh, participate in the care decisions, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's shifted too far. Um, and I think that people tend to view the doctor as a service provider, and I think it's much more complicated than that. So that's the meta issue. That's kind of a hard one to get your head around without having read the whole book. So the other thing is, is um, politically. I do think that healthcare is a political issue now, and it's becoming a red-hot one. It would be just hell to be a Republican precinct worker in Florida in November of this year, I'll tell you right now. Um, everywhere I've been in this country, people are pissed off about this drug benefit. So I think that it is a political issue and that people have to start voting and thinking with their, their well-being in mind and not just their wishes and hopes. I don't know what voting based on your kind of fairy tale wishes and hopes could lead to. We've probably seen a few examples of that lately. You know, both of my books and my first book about fat ended up with a call for a kind of tough-mindedness. And I really end this book the same way. You know, yeah, I think it's important to understand the motivations of pharmaceutical companies and to know very well the context that you, that you exist in. But let me read you the last paragraph, and I'll have to end this. Um, but that's why really blaming Uncle Pharma, that's what I call pharmaceutical companies in the book, Uncle Pharma, that's why blaming Uncle Pharma isn't good enough anymore. We can't let the charming little bastard off the hook, and we have to go him one better. Americans in pharma must recognize the mutual intensity, emotionality, and deceptiveness of their codependence. We need to shed synergy. Only then can we honestly learn where our true interests converge and where they depart. The stakes are high. It's your money and your life. I'd like to close with that. Thank you. Oh, they want the questions. Oh, I've got to give this. Okay, the first one is, which 1976 commentator on direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs concluded that the societal interest against the promotion of drug use for every ill, real, or imaginary seems to me extremely strong. The AMA, the American Pharmacy Association, Justice William Rehnquist, or Justice Harry Blackman? <coughs> Rehnquist. Conservatives used to hate advertising. Okay. Two. Today, most new prescription drugs are ex expected to show profitability within a 90 days. 90 days. 90 days is right. So you're basically a guinea pig. Okay. <laughs> Three, the day after the FDA announced that Pfizer's blockbuster pain pills Celebrex was associated with increased risk for heart attacks, Pfizer posted the following on the homepage of its website. A, a special announcement that the company was sorry and it would refund the, you know that. B, a special sweepstakes offering a free Royal Caribbean getaway to anyone who would register his name and personal information with the site. B, that's right. And lastly, in ancient Greece, Pharmacon meant A, an untrustworthy agricultural worker, B, a reformed criminal, C, a delicious beverage, or D, both remedy and poison? D is right. You've been listening to An Evening with Greg Kreitzer discussing his new book, Generation Rx, 
how prescription drugs are altering American lives, minds, and bodies. Coming up next on Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, we reprise a recent talk by Leonard Chang, the author of five novels, in which he discusses the struggle to reconcile the inner creative life with outside expectations and pressures. So not too long ago, while I was flipping through the channels, I found James Cameron's movie The Terminator, just starting with the opening sequence of a futuristic war. And I was about to continue channel surfing until the image cut to a modern-day garbage truck, its front forks lifting a dumpster. And I was immediately struck by the forced dual imagery of technology, of the not very subtle cutting between future versus present-day machinery. I hadn't seen this movie in years, and I decided to sit back and wait and watch a few more minutes. There's something utterly compelling about this primal chase story. The calculating, methodical, emotionless, and utterly relentless Terminator, Cyberdyne Systems Model 101, was a model of determination. Now I realize that by anthropomorphizing the robot, I am committing what logicians call a pathetic fallacy, in which I expose my arguments to objection by attributing human emotions to non-human things. So to call the Terminator determined is attributing a false emotional state. The Terminator is no more determined than a computer. It's decision-making process heuristical, not emotional. I understand this, but it's hard not to see Arnold Schwarzenegger's massive body on the screen aiming his 45 Magnum long slides laser sighting at Sarah Connor's forehead and think, man, this guy is scary. We search for human relevance, and Schwarzenegger offers that. In a way, by now you're probably wondering what the heck I'm getting at, but all this ties in with writing. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about what it takes to be a successful writer. I don't consider myself particularly successful as a writer yet because I'm still relatively young with a handful of novels. But I'm beginning, after doing this now for over a dozen years, beginning to get a stronger idea of what it takes to be successful. I can start this by giving you an example of someone I think was successful, not at writing, but successful in general in spite of hardships. And I think the clearest case of this is my mother. My mother, a stay-at-home mom, for 15 or so years, suddenly thrust into the role of the breadwinner, took a job as a secretary at a real estate firm, and worked her way up in six years, and let me emphasize that, in six years, from secretary to a partner in the firm, from typing memos on their letterhead to having her name listed on the letterhead itself. She worked 18-hour days, a chunk of that time spent in her makeshift home office, the kitchen table. I'd say goodnight to her at her desk, and when I'd wake up early, I'd walk into the kitchen and she'd still be sitting there, the morning light now brighter than the bulb above her. I'd kiss her good morning and go to school. She went from driving a rusting Dodge Dart to a new Porsche 924, cherry red. And let me tell you how funny it was to see this tiny middle-aged Asian woman wearing leather gloves, mirrored sunglasses, speeding down Sunrise Highway in a Porsche and getting speeding tickets. And she never once gave me the hackneyed advice I heard so often from other sources. I witnessed what hard work was. I saw what it did. I knew who to watch and what to learn. There are many writers out there whose careers serve as great examples from which to learn. You've probably heard many of them yourself. You know the stories of Jack London, for example, receiving over 500 rejections before he sold his first short story. Or Frank Herbert having Dune, rejected by every major publisher and eventually finding a publisher of automotive manuals to bring out his novel. Or Tom Clancy, who had a publisher of military books take his first novel. Or John Grisham, whose first publisher was a small division of a religious press. 
and who sold books out of the trunk of his car. But let's take Jack London's story for a moment. It's easy to rattle off these examples without really considering the pain involved. Imagine that you're this young, ambitious writer living in your mother's house, as which Jack London did, despite all of your friends having finished college and working at jobs. You have no money, but you want to write. Your mother shakes her head whenever she speaks of you to her friends. You work hard on your short stories. They take anywhere from a week to six months to complete. And you show them to friends and other writers who give you their often conflicting opinions. And yet you rewrite and throw out and rewrite again and again. Finally, you gather the nerve to send this manuscript out to a magazine. A real editor will read it. You type it out carefully, cursing the mistakes, and type it out again. You study the magazine you are sending the story to and decide they just might like your work. You adjust the envelope, check and recheck it obsessively. Then go to the post office and make sure the envelope doesn't get crushed in your mailbox. You go home and wait. Maybe you start another story. Maybe you reread the magazine, trying to imagine the editor's response. You dream a little. You envision not only publication, but prizes and awards and a book contract. You picture yourself on a book tour, and men and women scream and faint over your presence, ripping off their clothes and throwing them at you at your book signing. And you see yourself buying a big house on Mount Tan and a nice car, maybe even a Porsche 924. And you soon have a loving family and more books on bestseller lists and more fans, and eventually you receive the Nobel Prize for Literature. Stockholm, here you come. Then the story comes back in the mail with a small Xerox slip. On it, smudged and faded from repeated photocopies of photocopies, barely legible, all the words, we cannot use your submission at this time. Thank you. You check the envelope for something else. There isn't anything else except your story, which has been creased and crumpled in the mail. Your paperclip is missing. <laughs> You're a little disappointed, of course, but figure, hey, they just don't know what they're missing. So you send it out again. You dream, you wait, and another rejection, and another, and another. Can you imagine now doing this 500 times with your mother shaking her head at you? Jack London did it. Was he nuts? Was he stupid? What makes a person willing to go through this kind of rejection? No one likes to be rejected, to be told you are simply not good enough. Please allow me to give you one more good example of this, a more contemporary one, to help illustrate my point. It's not as dramatic, but more relevant. And the example I have in mind is of John Updike. John Updike is the author of two dozen novels, half a dozen poetry collections, eight story collections, seven books of literary criticism, two plays, one memoir, five children's books, and books on art criticism and golf. He has said on numerous occasions that his goal is to produce, quote, about a book a year, unquote. And he has maintained that schedule, more or less, since 1958. He has won every major American literary prize there is to win, and has been translated into almost any language you can think of. He is, by most accounts, one of the most celebrated 20th century American writers. What's interesting about Updike is that his career started out as a promising but mixed one, a series of highs and lows that could have derailed, as it has many other writers, and the range of critical reactions he has received throughout the early part of his career is astonishing. He has always had a strong, positive reaction from a small group of critics, beginning with his first book of short stories. But he has also provoked an equally strong, if not stronger, and certainly louder, group of protests from critics for whatever accolades he has received. But here's the point. Updike continues writing. What motivates someone to spend so many hours in front of a typewriter, alone with his thoughts, uncertain how his words will be received? 
That's the central question. And the answer, of course, is this. John Updike is the Terminator. There's a scene in the Terminator when Reese and Sarah believe they have won. Do you remember this? After the Terminator is repeatedly shot, thrown from a speeding motorcycle, run over by a truck, and blown up in a gasoline explosion, he, or it, staggers out of the flames, engulfed, and collapses in a fiery heap. After an uncertain moment, as Sarah stares out over the fire, we believe, as she does, that she has finally won. She closes her eyes with relief. Reese calls out her name, and they clutch one another. We did it, she says. We got it. The music hints at an end. But in the background, we see something rising up. New ominous music with a heavy bass swells. The flesh burned off, a metallic robot. The Terminator unsheathed, stands, its red eyes unwavering. Sarah cries out, no, and the Terminator, dragging a wounded leg, limps after them, a pneumatic hiss, reminiscent of the hiss of the opening garbage truck scene, reveals the inner creakings of the sophisticated robot. But it's this relentless pursuit of a goal that makes me think of Updike. I'm not trying to say that Updike dispatches books in the same manner as the Terminator dispatches bodies, but there is something ruthlessly methodical about vowing and keeping a self-imposed schedule of writing a book a year, methodical and perhaps a little bit frightening. When we see the Terminator going through the phone book and ripping out a page with all the Sarah Connors listed, and then we watch him hunt down all the Sarah Connors alphabetically, it's quite chilling. And when I think of Updike looking at the calendar and thinking, time for another novel, and then he writes one, that's also chilling, for a writer at least. It's made even more frightening when we see how good Updike often is at what he does. Quote, it's not a man, it's a machine, Reese says to Sarah. It can't be bargained with, it can't be reasoned with, it doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear, and it absolutely will not stop, ever, unquote. I didn't finish the story about my mother. You see, there's a twist. Not too long after she was made a partner, they brought in another partner. This new man and my mother didn't get along at all. First, he was bigoted. And though his racism was never manifested itself in ways that the other partners saw, my mother knew it from the comments he made to her from the condescending attitude he often had toward her. Second, he was sexist, but in a business where your worth is determined not by your liberal or illiberal attitudes, but by how much money you brought in, my mother and this man clashed often. She began to sense factions developing, conspiracies afoot, tensions grew. Some of you might be thinking, oh sure, if there's a problem at work, yell racism and sexism, rather than address real issues. But in this case, it was the issue. Her work was never in question and yet she began to feel animosity from her partners. Shortly after the head of the firm, my mother's mentor, decided to retire, the new president of the firm, the son of the retiring president, announced that he was disbanding the firm, the partnership, the business. It had grown too big, too burdensome, he said, and it was time for everyone to go on their own. There was some talk of accounting irregularities, of tax problems, of a softening real estate market, but nothing very concrete. It was strange, my mother thought, but here was the new president shutting down the firm, and she had little to say about it. Here is the interesting part. Shortly after the breakup, my mother learned something startling. She learned that the president had reformed a new partnership, a new firm, and it contained all of the original partners except one, her. Who do you think was the new vice president, the man whom she had fought with in the past? In order to get rid of my mother, they disbanded the firm, then started a new one, and pointedly excluded her. My mother was devastated, of course. So, what did she do? She could have tried legal action, but the partners were crafty. By disbanding the firm, 
They did not violate the partnership agreement. And my mother didn't want to go through a protracted and extremely costly legal battle since although she had a little money, it wasn't about to last long since she was still raising three kids, all of whom were heading or about to head off to college. And that, as most of you know, is not an inexpensive endeavor. So what did she do? What did the Terminator do after being blown up in a gasoline tanker? What did Updike do after being labeled by the New York Times as a clumsy, string-puller, chauvinistic puppeteer? What did Jack London do after the 499th rejection? Well, the first thing my mother did was to sell her Porsche. And she bought a used Honda Civic. And then she started her own company. No pity, no remorse, no fear. I mention this to introduce the issue of race with respect to my novels. And although you might not have realized this, race and ethnicity often become a strange burden to some writers. In some instances, writing about Asian Americans, as I have, has created some interesting problems with publishers. You might be thinking, mm, no way. With the success of writers like Amy Tan and Maxine Hunt Kingston, any writer working within that wide-ranging genre of Asian American literature will have it easy. But therein lies the problem. It's the, precisely the wild successes of the Tans and the Kingstons that have created the dilemma for many Asian American writers because most publishers wanting to emulate these successes are looking for another Amy Tan. They're often looking for exoticized portrayals of Asians and Asian Americans, depictions that will appeal to a generic audience's desire to see something different. And to give you a sort of a general idea of what I'm talking about, allow me to quote two short excerpts from two different rejection letters, both from extremely well-known editors in New York. The first one is more recent, written to my agent. In most ways, it's a perfectly good book. What fails for me is that virtually nothing is made of the fact that these guys are Korean. I suppose in the alleged melting pot of America, that might be a good thing. But for the book, it doesn't lend anything even lightly exotic to the narrative or the characters which might have made them stand out. I feel confident you'll have little trouble placing this, as it is better than most books of its type that I see with regularity. Before sending it out again, you might suggest to the author that he make the characters a little more ethnic than merely going out for one Korean meal together. The second letter is older, also from an editor. I'm sorry to say that the promise of the early pages were not fulfilled by the balance of the rest. The characters, especially the main character, just do not seem Asian enough. They act like everyone else. <laughs> they don't eat Korean food. They don't speak Korean. And you have to think about ways to make these characters more ethnic, more different. We get too much of the minutiae of the characters' lives and none of the details that separate Koreans and Korean Americans from the rest of us. The main character acts like every American mom, and even her affair with the secondary character is overly familiar. For example, in the scene when she looks into the mirror, you don't show how she sees her slanted eyes or how she thinks of her Asianness. This, by the way, is a, a direct quote. And of course, my problem with this response is that Korean Americans aren't significantly different from the rest of us, whoever that is. And to fault a novel because the Korean American characters don't eat Korean food, don't speak Korean, and don't think about their slanted eyes every time they look in the mirror is utter ignorance. Anyone who thinks Asians stare in the mirror and contemplate their Asianness clearly has tremendous <laughs> misconceptions about race and ethnicity. Now, I admit when I was young, very young, I would look in the mirror and, almost in surprise, see an Asian face. I would play with my eyelashes and wonder what made my eyes so distinct. But the character in the novel was in her mid-30s, and race was the furthest thing from her mind at that particular moment. 
I think what ties everything together of what I've written thus far, regardless of the form, is that the characters' lives are often disconnected, estranged, hermetic. I can try to posit an elaborate theory of why I do this, relating to the experience of being Asian-American and the attempt of my characters to resist the look of the other, existential alienation, or maybe even throwing in some anthropological observations about assimilation and acculturation, maybe the sublimated or not so sublimated racism. But I hesitate to intellectualize too much of what I do. That's not really my job, but the job of the critic or the reviewer. However, I will say this much. I don't believe that there's a true common Asian-American experience, despite what we might hear from reviewers of popular Asian-American novels. And although I'm sure we can find similar experiences of racism or immigrant difficulties, that this is not strictly an Asian-American experience, and even the diversity within the term Asian-America and the difficulty to categorize people who fall within that very broad classification should tell you how hard and how dangerous it is to produce such distinctions. This isn't to say that other Asian-American writers are wrong or faking it when they write about communities as they know it, but when editors and agents start telling me what my novel should be like, I get worried. I was never really part of any Asian-American community. I didn't even know any other Asian-Americans until practically college. But that's not entirely true, because there was one boy in my school who was such a self-hating ethnic that he used to beat the crap out of me whenever we saw each other. <laughs> but that was pretty much the extent of my Asian-American community. <laughs> my parents did try to take me to a Korean church for a while, but I didn't know how to handle that, and ended up going to the movies while my parents went to the church. A common connecting element of community is language. And here again, I find myself at odds with what I see and read in popular culture, either by or about Asian Americans. I can't speak Korean. I can't read Korean. I can't understand a word of Korean. My parents are immigrant Koreans, and the reason why I never learned their mother tongue was that I was developing a speech impediment when I was younger. And one of the prevailing theories of developmental language at the time when I was growing up was that having two languages at home confused the child. We know this now to be false but my parents were told by doctors to speak one language to me. And of course, they chose English, the language around them. However, they still spoke Korean to each other, and I grew up not knowing a word of what my parents were saying to each other when they fought, and fight they did. And so, as I mentioned in one of my short stories, uh, the Korean language, for me, became associated with violence. What's interesting about all this stuff I've been rambling about is that it ties into my Alan Choice mystery trilogy, the third installment, Fade to Clear, appearing last year. The first of the series, Over the Shoulder, set in the Bay Area, has a Korean-American man, Alan Choice, as the protagonist. And although everyone within my immediate circle of writers, critics, and friends like the novel, my literary agent had a very difficult time finding the right publisher for this. The first problem was how to define a novel that wasn't squarely within the crime genre, since it involved the protagonist's search not only for the killer, but a search into the past, into the issues of his family. How do you sell a mystery thriller that I tried to make as introspective as a memoir? Commercial publishers with strong mystery lists told my agent that this wasn't commercial enough for them. They wanted more action, more spectacle. Literary publishers, on the other hand, told my agent that this wasn't literary enough, clearly, since there are people running around for guns, for heaven's sake, and they couldn't put this alongside their literary novels. This disappointed me, not only because I wanted to sell the novel, but because the publishers had such rigid and narrow conceptions of what constituted a mystery novel. 
A mystery for me has requirements of form, not formula. A mystery doesn't have to have all action all the time. No, for me, a mystery adheres to a general form, i.e. a crime is committed and we must discover the solution. In the same way that a sonnet, a haiku, or any kind of formal poetry has structural rules. The second problem was the presence of an Asian American protagonist that didn't fall into any of the categories the editors were familiar with. Bluntly put, when they realized the main character was Asian American, they expected an Asian American story, whatever that is. No, this isn't a story about assimilation and culturation, about first or second generation Korean Americans trying to understand what it is to be an American and grappling with issues of race. The narrator is Korean American, but he is completely American. No, this isn't a novel about searching for identity within the context of being a racial minority and outsider. It's a novel about identity within the context of families, and just so happens that the protagonist and his family are Asian. Race was secondary to the novel. It wasn't about race, and this created some confusion. Some readers wanted more access into the Korean American community, but race, although an important component of the protagonist, wasn't the only component. Race was one facet of a multifaceted character. We are just not our race. So by the third time the manuscript was rejected, my agent was puzzled. He had been certain that this novel would be snapped up. By the fifth rejection, he was getting a little nervous. We would read the rejection letters and he kept saying to me, they don't get it, they just don't get what you're doing. By the twelfth rejection, he was downright gloomy. But I was undeterred. I have faced many, many more rejections than that for my work. Well, luckily enough for me, there was an editor who saw what I was trying to do, and two printings later, translation sales to France, Japan, and Korea, a second novel, Underkill, published, and a third, Fade to Clear, receiving some of the best reviews I've ever received. I'm revealing all this to show you rather than tell you what should be obvious by now, especially if you are a writer and have aspirations to write. Remember this, you have to be relentless. You have to be the Terminator without pity, without remorse, and without fear. Thanks. You've been listening to Leonard Chang, author of five novels discussing the creative process. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new LA. Special thanks to Semper Law Group, the Los Angeles Times, the James Irvine Foundation, California Endowment, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles for making this program possible. For more information, please log on to ZocaloLA.org. If you would like a digital download of tonight's Zocalo radio program, please go to the podcast page at kpcc.org. Zocalo's producers are Peter Stencil and Annie Chelsea. Our engineer is Jade Gao. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening.